Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah. We'll look at the last part of Isaiah 52 and then focus on Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one that we kind of think about for the Christmas season, but it also is significant in another way, and that is so many of the things that we will see today in Isaiah 53 were literally fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, about a hundred years ago, there were skeptics that argued that Isaiah 53 must have been written after the fact. It was maybe added to the scrolls of Isaiah because the specific statements in Isaiah 53 parallel so closely to Jesus that this must have been done after the fact. Seventy years ago this year, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you've ever been to Israel, um, you actually see the Isaiah 53 scroll, and you can see these written down, the copies at that time, or a hundred years before the time of Christ. And of course, Isaiah was written hundreds of years before. It kind of ended that. But as we go through this, you will see how specific that is. And one of the things Parker mentioned is I'm a host of a show called Point of View, and we do these books booklets that come out every month. We'll ask them to print an extra 200 because the one I'm writing this month is on Messianic prophecy. So I'm going to stick some of them out there on the table there and I think you will actually see how important that is. And again, it's one of the most powerful arguments, especially if you're your Orthodox Jewish people. So we'll make those available uh, probably by next week uh, when all those come in. But again, let's get into what we're going to look at today, because the focus that the church has taken us through is we're looking right now at Isaiah, then we'll be looking at Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others, on how we see the coming of the Christ. And here we now run into just the opposite of what Pastor Graham was talking about. In Hebrews chapter 4, we talk about a high and exalted great high priest. Today we look at a suffering servant, servant who seems to break the convention of every kind of leader because he comes home humbly into the world in obscure circumstances. He lives an innocent life, yet dies a painful death. This is not exactly the way you'd write a Hollywood movie about a leader or a salvation or a savior or uh, somebody of that nature. And he follows God's plan, overcoming sin and securing redemption for his people. And so we'll finish off, first of all, in chapter 52, where it says, Behold my servant, act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. That's a phrase we just saw earlier in Isaiah 6. And he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. And so the first thing we have have about this coming suffering servant is that here he would first of all be very different than what we would expect. Isaiah 55 reminds us that God's ways are higher than our ways. And so here, even as they're looking for the Messiah, this must have been a really troubling set of chapters, chapter 52 and especially chapter 53, for those that were expecting the Messiah to be a king, a ruler, a military commander. Instead, this pretty much uh, surprises all of us because, first of all, we do see the good things. He will possess the very wisdom of God in heaven. 
And he will shock them, though, with his appearance and coming. First of all, it says he'll be high and lifted up. And as I pointed out in Isaiah chapter 6, when here Isaiah is in the presence of God, he sees, of course, him high and lifted up. But here, now it's talking about Jesus being high and lifted up. But at the same time, now the contrast. He's not necessarily an attractive figure like so many other conquerors. He would not come to earth to live comfortably, not born in a palace, born in a manger, uh, not living a life of luxury, but working in a carpenter shop, not uh, having all the financial needs necessarily met, but actually living on the goodwill of those as in a a traveling itinerant preacher, and ultimately, verse 15, rejected by men. So in some respects, categorically different than any other kind of leader or ruler or king that has ever ruled the earth. And so in some respects, it would be totally unexpected because in some respects, he would be discarded and yet he would be a surprise to the world. It would look different than what we would expect a leader to do. But of course, now we can see the surprise to the nations of the world because look at even right now, I think the cover of Newsweek magazine has a picture of Jesus and Time and Newsweek and U.S. News Report, all of the art in the world seems to, in one way or another, harken back to Jesus and all of the history. Uh, remember when you used to have Encyclopedia Britannicas? Of course, I know we don't have those now. <laughs> but if you did, you found that the largest entry in the Encyclopedia Britannica was Jesus. And yet this is an individual who was on the public stage for about, what, three years? When you look at Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, we were talking about maybe 150 years, but they don't even get quite the mention that Jesus does. You look at some of the great leaders and kings of the years of the various centuries, again, Jesus is a surprise to the nations of the world, and so we see that uh, certainly in chapter 52, but now turn with me to chapter 53, because this is where we begin to see some of the remarkable similarities intended, by the way, between this suffering servant that will come, the Messiah, and Jesus himself. Because verse 33, uh, chapter 33, excuse me, verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a like plant and like a root out of the dry gland. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not and so here we of course have the indication of the rejection of Jesus here and so there are really kind of two questions that you have that Isaiah is asking here in verse 1 which I think parallel to what we find if you're taking some notes you might put down Luke chapter 4 verses 14 to 30 Isaiah asked, first of all, who has believed in this suffering servant? And the implication is, sadly, not many believed in him. The second question that Isaiah asked is, who has seen the arm of the Lord at work? And again, sadly, many witnessed his arm, that is, his miracles that he performed, and his ministry and his proclamation, yet they did not respond in faith. 
just striking to see the contrast there. So rather than being raised in total obscurity, hidden from the eyes of mankind as some old prophets and religious leaders were, I mean, we don't even have Buddha coming on the scene until he crawls over that wall and others here. He's actually in plain sight. Go to Nazareth. You want to see him? There he is. And again, they were expecting some Messiah to come out, flashy and outlandish displays and those kinds of things. But instead, we see this humble servant's plain beginnings. And then, of course, we see that unassuming entrance and growth. Again, that listens nothing from them. Even though when we go to the gift of Christmas, we'll see this uh, appearance of the magi of these three wise men. But after that, not much. And even the few that saw him were very few indeed. A lot of people didn't know where he was. Herod wants to go kill him and they said, well, just kill anybody under the age of two because we have no idea who he is. We don't know where he is. And that, again, just illustrates again how insignificant from the world's point of view his birth was. I love the Hebrew words there for beauty, for form, and majesty. They're kind of talking about, you know, physical features and things like that. But also, just again, talking about the fact that here we have this humble servant who actually has a calling, but it's very obscure. And we then come to the point, as we see in verse 3, where he is rejected. I mean, he is simply not held. And since we've been talking about Hebrews, I thought we'd go to Hebrews 4. It affirms that he lived a life of rejection and pain, but that was his fulfillment as we saw that. And of course, today we looked at another part of him being the great high priest. So again, Jesus, the humble suffering servant, accepted this path of death and misery to face rejection from his people that he might save us. Let's go on. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we were healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. One of the verses that many of us probably memorized very early on, it was almost always in those scripture memory packets. And here again we see that, first of all, verse 4, that the suffering servant took on our infirmities. Verse 4 also, the suffering servant carried the people's sorrows. And then verse 5, the suffering servant was pierced and crushed for people's transgressions and iniquities. This is again a parallel verse to if you go to Psalm 22, which it talks about him being pierced. And it's interesting to whether you look at Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, when this was written, what was the mode of execution? Stoning. As a matter of fact, the idea of crucifixion really was developed uh, by some barbarian tribes. And about 100 B.C., the Romans began to implement that as a punishment for non-Roman citizens, the most heinous criminals. And yet here you have a statement about he was what? Pierced through for our transgressions. Then the suffering servant suffers punishing wounds. 
what happened to Jesus. Um, beaten and um, struck many times. Ultimately, verse 6, all the people's iniquities were placed upon him. And he stood in the place of us, helpless sinners. And then God's righteous wrath poured down upon him, freeing us from sin and shame. And then we can see also that he talks about this idea that we're kind of like lost sheep, like blind sheep. Uh, we seek our own way. And because of that, we re- receive, verse 6, true righteousness. And then Isaiah indicates that God is the one who has willed the suffering servant, as well as others, to place, or place that sin on Christ. And so you can see the contrast there as well. Let's look at verse 7. For he was oppressed, he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth. What did Jesus say before his accusers? Nothing. Like a lamb that has been led to slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, he was crucified with what? Two criminals. And with a rich man in his death, he was laid in a tomb. Who was that? Joseph of Arimathea. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. And, of course, you can see again, some of the specificity of this was causing many individuals who were skeptics to say, you know, Isaiah 53, that must have been a scroll that was added later on. You know, after all, we don't have the original scrolls. uh, And so during the time in which the Masoretics were writing these scrolls, somehow that got added in later on. Wrong. But you can see why they wanted to believe that, because now you're starting to see all these prophetic utterances being fulfilled in one individual, Jesus Christ. But again, we see this in another way, and that is it sheds more light on this salvation that comes through this individual's death. And this must have been so curious to the rabbis who were expecting this exalted Messiah to find these troubling passages about the death of this suffering servant and wondering if maybe that applies to someone else. It could couldn't possibly apply to the Messiah who's taking on these individuals' death and sin. Maybe it applies to um, the scapegoat. Maybe it applies to uh, Yom Kippur. Maybe it has to apply to something else because here is an individual who is being slaughtered just like the sacrificial system with the sheep. And it makes no sense that that's how God would save us. In verse 8, of course, then we see that if there is anyone who might further want to explain, revive the message of servant, the question is, no, that's exactly what is coming. It all seems lost at this point. I mean, this is like the worst possible situation in a story or a movie where you say, it looks like my hero is going to be killed. Um, And we know the rest of the story on some of those situations. But nevertheless, sometimes the the spear is about ready to go into the uh, hero or the hero is just about ready to be thrown off the cliff or whatever. Then they're saved. And here, it's that same kind of situation where here he dies in shame for us. 
And so finally, then we come to uh, verse 10. Yet it was the will of God, look at this, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, we see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by the knowledge that the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide his portion with many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and it was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Again, you can see even some of the allusions to as Jesus is dying, dividing up the spoil and the rest. And so in the midst of this, we finally come to a victory. Uh, Isaiah turns the story kind of on its head. We see kind of this nondescript description of this individual. Suddenly it becomes, if you will, kind of a song of victory over sin and death. Verse 10, Isaiah begins to reframe the way people ought to understand the purposes of the suffering servant. And so as a result, we see that uh, he is not just suffering meaninglessly. He's not trying to simply die in defeat. Because after all, God does not waste time and energy and efforts, but instead has a clear purpose. Even if sometimes we don't see God's clear purpose. But nevertheless, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a plan. But here we can see ultimately that the servant's death results in what? Glorification. Greater still then we see that Isaiah declares not simply forgiveness for fault or purging of sin, but, if you will, the imputation of righteousness. So in the midst of this, what seemed like such a horrible thing to happen to the suffering servant now begins to provide what? Victory. For those of you taking some notes, maybe you'd like to look at this during your uh, morning quiet time, I thought we might talk about this idea of imputation of righteousness. When God looks at us, if we've accepted Jesus Christ, he doesn't see us in our sin. He sees his sinless son who died for us, and it's imputed upon us. And certainly the Apostle Paul spends some time writing about that, so I thought I'd give you two verses that uh, certainly make that case that Isaiah is making here in Isaiah 53. The first we find in Romans 13. It's kind of a passing reference, but it still is kind of interesting. So Romans 13, um, verse 14, is one idea of how Christ's righteousness is imputed upon us. But probably the most significant passage is found in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians 3, 27, we'll give you some of that as well, where the idea is that we are to once again move forward in a life of faith based upon grace. And again, Pastor... Um, Graham talked about mercy and grace, so I should have maybe put mercy up there. I didn't know he was going to use the word mercy and grace, but grace and forgiveness rather than to live in sin and misery. So again, what started out in this particular passage for our Jewish writers of a suffering servant that would suffer so much ends up being victorious and we can live in that victory because Christ died for our sins. If nothing else, I hope that makes the words Christ died for our sins have a little more meaning when you think about it in terms of Isaiah 53. 
But in order to end on time, because I know we're all ready to go down there and eat at uh, um, our special uh, place of gathering, and I hope that if you are new, that you will think about coming, you know, and if uh, expense is something, you know, I'll, I'll buy your lunch because we really want to get to know you, and some of the best ways to meet people are actually to meet people around a table. So I hope you'll join us today. But I thought we might want to talk about Veterans Day for just a minute. And Veterans Day began uh, 100 years ago today, 11th hour, 11th day, 11th month, 1918. And it was known as Armistice Day because the Great War, as it was known back then, now we call it World War I, was winding down. There was a need to actually have a designated time for the end of hostilities. Of course, the Treaty of Versailles was actually signed later in 1919, June 28th. But the actual fighting uh, ended seven months earlier on the 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. So that gives us a little bit of a background. So the following year in November, uh, the president at that time, Woodrow Wilson, declared November 11th is Armistice Day. I'm going to show you a video on that in just a minute. And uh, of course we recognize that World War I was not the war to end all wars. We had World War II. By the time we had the Korean War, in 1954, Congress decided to change this, and so in the law, it struck out the word armistice and put in the word veterans, and decided that this would be a day set aside for anyone in any war that had ever served. Memorial Day is for those who have died, and of course we're going to talk about that a little bit, but Veterans Day for those whether they died or survived. I thought it would be appropriate here in the exam class if you have ever served in the military, or maybe even are currently serving in the military, can you stand so we can applaud you? As I say so often, we'll never be able to thank you enough for your service, but let's, if we can, learn a little bit more about the history of Veterans Day. Soldiers from wars both old and new march down city streets. Flags hang from homes, businesses, even car antennas. Ceremonies remember those who dutifully served their nation. It's Veterans Day, or Remembrance Day, as it's known in much of the world. A time to honor members of the armed forces. And it all began in a railroad car, with a document to end the war, to end all wars. World War One, also known as the Great War, shocked the global community with its unprecedented toll in human life. Untold millions were killed. Germany was running low on manpower and supplies, so they agreed to sign an armistice, or truce, in the French commander Ferdinand Foch's private rail car. On the 11th hour, on the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, all was quiet on the Western Front. The fighting had ended. Exactly one year later, President Woodrow Wilson decreed that Americans should observe a moment of silence at 11 a.m. to remember the armistice and to embrace the peace. Other allied nations commemorated the peaceful anniversary as well. In England and Canada, citizens wore paper poppies. Poppies had become a symbol of the armistice. The poem Flanders Field described a one-time battlefield. In Flanders Field, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row. 
In America, the nation's first unknown soldier was laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery on Armistice Day, 1921. He was a casualty of the Great War. Since that first memorial, other unknown soldiers from America's wars have been interred in the tomb. And it's become tradition for the president or one of his representatives to lay a wreath on the monument every November 11th. A resolution was passed in 1926 inviting all Americans to remember Armistice Day and the soldiers who fought so hard for peace. The idea caught on. By 1938, the day was marked with so many ceremonies and parades, Congress made it a legal holiday, giving people the day off work. After World War II and the Korean War, Americans wanted to open up the holiday to include not just World War I veterans, but all who served in combat. In 1954, President Dwight Eisenhower, a World War II vet himself, legally changed the U.S. Armistice Day to Veterans Day, honoring those who served in all American wars. For a brief time, starting in 1971, Congress moved the holiday to the fourth Monday in October, giving Americans a three-day weekend. But most people rejected the idea. The traditional date of November 11th, the anniversary of the Great War's ceasefire, was too historically important to forget. President Ford reversed the law in 1975, returning Veterans Day back to its rightful date. Over the decades, the holiday has changed with the times. Originally, it was a call for world peace. Then in the U.S., it became a day to remember war veterans. Today, Veterans Day is set aside to honor not just those who served in war, but also those who have served their nation in peace. Okay, so just a little bit of a history there as well. When you go to other countries, you recognize, especially those that fought in World War II, how significant that day is. I have told the story before, but it's worth repeating for some of our uh, visitors, that uh, a number of years ago, I was in Heathrow Airport on November 11th, and they made an announcement over the loudspeaker, they still call it Armistice Day, that uh, in order to honor those and the Armistice and those war dead at 11 o'clock a buzzer will sound and we ask for a moment of silence this is Heathrow Airport London people from all over the world you were thinking there is not a chance that sounded and it was dead quiet throughout the entire airport I thought that's pretty impressive, you know, if nothing else. Just they suffered so much both in World War I and World War II, and they understood the significance of that. And I think we could learn some lessons from some of them. So if nothing else, just as we're coming to an end here, I thought I'd uh, maybe bring a couple of uh, verses and things to mind about maybe what we can do even to uh, make Veterans Day significant. And the first thing is I've always said that Veterans Day is a way to maybe recover. We just had some pretty contentious elections you know and oftentimes it's a time of conflict and emotional upheaval uh, sometimes there are all these scars that last for a long time but once the votes are counted and when I wrote that I thought by then the votes would be counted in Florida silly me but nevertheless um, we, it's, it's sort of time to move on okay and I think one way to move on is to say 
Whether we agree with the election or not, whether we like who was elected or not, we, I think, can certainly stand up for our freedom and be grateful for our freedom. So I think Veterans Day is one of those times where it can be a real healing in the midst of what has been a very divided nation. Uh, because no matter what your political label is, I would imagine you would appreciate the fact that we enjoy tremendous freedom in this country. And certainly we owe a lot of that to our veterans. And so I just thought I'd put a couple of verses up there. You might want to reflect on or put them in your notes. First Peter 2 says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king, as the supreme authority, or to governors, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And so certainly we, as we come now to the end of our elections, have to submit ourselves to those in authority. You may not like your senator, you may not like your congressman, you may not like your president, you may not like your governor, you may not like your state senator, your state representative, you may, but I'm just saying that I think we have a responsibility to be good citizens, no matter what those circumstances might be, and if nothing else, call upon the government to do two things, to punish wrongdoers and also to commend those who do right. So it certainly strikes me as something that we could think about. But here's another thought. Philippians 2, verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And it seems to me that if nothing else, we should, in the midst of a divided country right now, and in terms of our Veterans Day, which is today and being celebrated tomorrow, maybe just try to figure out if there's some ways we can be an encouragement. Oftentimes we tend to be a discouragement. I saw, I saw a writer recently said, well, here's a couple of questions you can ask yourself. Am I an encouragement or not? Uh, these are almost Zig Ziglar kind of questions, but it came from somebody else. Question one is, are the people that you run into happier than they were before I came along? In other words, have I increased their happiness? Number two, are they better off since I came along? And so sometimes we uh, forget that we can be a real encouragement to those around us. And so I see that as another real important action item. Let's try another one. Galatians 6 verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And so I just think there's just an opportunity maybe for us now to look for those key opportunities to do good for others. And if nothing else, Veterans Day, I think, should be an opportunity for us to maybe be an encouragement to the veterans. You may have been sitting right next to one of the veterans that just stood up. How about you buy them lunch today or do something for them? Is that an idea? That's at least one way we could be an encouragement to them. Thank them for their service. Some people are now starting to give some elbows here. So, hey, maybe that's a possibility. But my suggestion is let's be an encouragement. You know, this would be a great day that we provide some encouragement for maybe some of those people that stood uh, for us and for our freedom. Uh, probably the, I'll close with this one, then show one last video, which is a great tribute to Veterans Day. You know, in John 15, we have this phrase, this very interesting statement by Jesus in the midst of um, his, if you will, sermon. The greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You know, and I've seen some American speakers have put it this way. You know, you had two friends that died for you, the soldier and Jesus Christ. The soldier died for your political freedom. Jesus died for your spiritual freedom. I know that sometimes 
a little bit overdone. But if nothing else, I think it's just an idea that in some respects, we certainly today have been talking about how we are so grateful for the fact that this suffering servant, Jesus, went and died in our place that we might have everlasting life. And that's the greatest gift we could ever receive. Further down the list, though, and not insignificant, are those individuals that aren't here today, that did not stand up here today, that died for our freedom, and maybe it's just a way we could express our gratitude to them. I thought I'd end with this uh, video that was put together to really honor those of you for Veterans Day, and if nothing else afterwards, we'll turn it back over to Parker.